This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. Hello and welcome to Deviant Women. This is Lauren and I am here without Alicia today because she is off gallivanting around Japan and China. Lucky for her. But don't worry because she actually is joining us in a weird fusion of technological wonder because today is a very special episode where we got to sit down with Laura Elizabeth Woollett, the author of Beautiful Revolutionaries. And the reason that we sat down with Laura Elizabeth Woollett is because today's figure is, well, a very compelling one, Carolyn Layton. I don't know if that name will ring a bell to many of you, but the name of her lover probably will. Jim Jones, anybody? You know, the guy with the big sunglasses, the Elvis hair, the drink the Kool-Aid guy? Him. Carolyn Layton was his mistress. So Alicia and I sat down with Laura Elizabeth Woollett, who is, as I said, the author of Beautiful Revolutionary, which traces a fictionalized version of Carolyn Layton's life. And I think what makes Carolyn so compelling and the reason that I wanted to talk about her and Laura about her is because she represents this really particular aspect of female deviancy that is at once, I think, really underplayed in our society and when it is, is represented as atrociously monstrous. I love thinking about female criminality and Carolyn Layton is interesting because, I mean, really, do we even see her as being criminal? Should we? Would she have seen herself this way? I mean, almost certainly not. But I also think it's really important to think about why women do bad things and why we have certain assumptions about them when we do. So Laura Elizabeth Woollett is the author of the fictional account of the People's Temple from Carolyn, who becomes Evelyn in the book's point of view. She's also the author of the short story collection, The Love of a Bad Man, which delves into the interior lives of the girlfriends, lovers and wives of some of history's baddest men, like murderers and dictators and criminals, you know, like Hitler, for example. And so it's pretty safe to say that we share a fascination. So without any further ado, let us jump into our chat with Laura Elizabeth Woollett. We are very excited to talk to you today, obviously because a lot of your fiction overlaps with our own interests in stories of women who, for one reason or another, go sort of off the tracks, I suppose, is a a simplistic way of putting it. For example, your short story collection, The Love of a Bad Man, looks at multiple women who've loved some of history's worst men. And of course, we're talking about bad, bad. We're not just talking about the local rebel or the local bad boy. We're talking about murderers. We're talking about dictators, criminals, cult leaders. So I guess, can we just start by asking you what it is that draws you to these particular women's stories? I guess I'm interested in the way that they kind of um, occupy this ambiguous territory where, because looking at the stories, um, some of them are more perpetrators and some of them are more victims, but it's kind of this like strange overlapping space and I feel like a lot of these women could have gone in you know completely different and innocuous directions if their circumstances were slightly different 
So to me, I, I think it's um, – I'm generally more interested in uh, people who do bad things who aren't necessarily the easily identifiable evil people. Yeah, and I felt like a lot of the women, especially the ones I read about for The Love of a Bad Man, kind of occupied that territory. But at the same time, there were some women I read about who were probably as bad as the men who they were with. And that was interesting in its own way because it, I guess it's something we don't get to see as often in representations of women. So that's actually something I'm really interested in because I really love talking about and thinking about like female criminality and because I think it is so often underplayed in our society and when it happens these women are either I guess portrayed as being victims under the sway of you know something bigger or they are really 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 monstrous and I think it's really interesting to think about why women do bad things and I also want to ask questions about like why is it important that we talk about women that do bad things? Why, why do we need to hear these stories, basically? Because I guess that also taps into, I guess, that kind of morbid curiosity that's maybe at the heart of, like, the popularity of true crime genres and stuff mm. like that. But they can also sometimes seem like problematic genres to be interested in for all sorts of kind of really complicated reasons. So, yeah, I sometimes wonder what it is that I'm really drawn to when I'm drawn to these stories because I'm not sure if I'm just like tapping into that, yeah, I don't know, some kind of weird morbid fascination or if it is actually something that is bigger and more important. And I guess that's it. I mean, I guess that's a question I get asked a lot as well. Like, why are you writing about such dark subjects? Um, but I think the big themes are there, the themes of you know power and control and how we operate in that way, both like in society more widely, but also in personal relationships. But we seem to sort of frame those conversations around women differently to how we frame those exact same mm. conversations around men, though, because obviously, you know, there are male figures that behave in these same ways, but that conversation is different. And like you said as well, I suppose it, it feeds into that kind of inherent belief that women should be empathetic and nurturing and that these are the traits that they should have yeah. rather than these traits of being domineering or powerful or violent or aggressive. You know, these aren't those typical stereotypical feminine traits. But I guess something else that seems to come through in these stories as well is that sometimes these male figures play into that role of actually feminizing the women that they're with in that they play these kind of these protector positions or, you know, they're, they're sort of daddy figures in a way and it kind of bleeds into their role as dominating authority figures. So there seems to be this kind of fascination with this overbearing and, and dangerous masculinity and perhaps that these women want to play that submissive role to a certain extent. I don't know if you have anything that you, you want to say to that or if you think that plays into it at all, but do you, do you think that there might be some element of that in these relationships that develop? Yeah, I mean, I guess the whole notion of masculinity, um, at least traditionally, is sometimes um, there's this underlying sense of them being men being predatory and that being okay and men being domineering and that being okay and even attractive and romantic so um these men are kind of like very very extreme examples of that but also I, I hope that by writing about this I can um show you know this is the extreme and maybe we should look at that and look at 
why these things are seen as romantic. And these are the things that we're going to go through today as we talk about Carolyn Layton, the mistress of the infamous Jim Jones. Because as someone who ended up complicit in the mass suicide of over 900 people, because spoiler alert, guys, this is where this story goes, Carolyn didn't actually lead a particularly quote-unquote deviant life. I mean, unless you count being a socially progressive, anti-racist socialist as deviant. Yeah, I guess she was. (laughs) So Carolyn Moore was born on the 13th of July, 1945, into what was, by all accounts, a lovely, socially progressive middle-class family in Sacramento, California. Her father was a Methodist minister, her mother was a homemaker, and it seems really pretty idyllic in many ways, except for one traumatic event when her father took up a position at a church in Youngstown, Ohio, and the family moved there. But soon, Barbara, Carolyn's mother, suffered an ectopic pregnancy, and Carolyn was sent to live with her grandparents while she recovered. And this sparked a deep separation anxiety in Carolyn, and for her parents as well. When she finally returned to her parents, her father had to sleep next to her for a while until she could be weaned away from him. I don't know if that's creepy or not. Otherwise, though, it seems like a very loving home with loving parents. She had two little sisters who came along a little bit later and they had a very typical happy life, riding bikes, hanging out in the community. The family opened their doors to young people who needed somewhere to stay. And indeed, the generosity and social mindedness of her parents was quite influential on her. Her father was a conscientious objector during the war and her mother supported the peace movement. And so Carolyn ended up being quite socially conscientious and perhaps surprisingly, particularly for her historical context, someone who was very aware of her privilege from an early age. She identified as a communist as a teen. She was also really intelligent and a high achiever. She was on the honor roll at school. And so after graduating, she went to UC Davis, where she enrolled in international relations. She was on the dean's list and was popular and social. Basically, she was a good kid. Interestingly, she once said to her father, I don't expect to marry. I think I'll be a bachelor girl. But then in the summer of 1965, she traveled to Bordeaux in France as part of her college abroad program. And here she met a boy named Alexandre. It was pretty serious and the two became engaged and she was even planning on staying in France to study philosophy and to marry him. Something happened though, and the two broke up. She spent some time traveling around, staying in hostels and working before returning to California. And it's here that she met Larry Layton. The two married. He was still studying his undergraduate degree and she was in a teaching credential program. His parents were academics and worked at Berkeley. And it seemed like they might have had very similar influences on him as Carolyn's parents had had on her. He was also a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War and instead he started his alternate civilian service at a state mental hospital while Carolyn worked as a teacher not far from Ukiah. It's here that these two young and socially conscientious lefties were introduced by some friends to their new dream church, this progressive and exciting place called the People's Temple and its intriguing and charismatic leader, Jim Jones. Well, Jim Jones was the leader of a church called People's Temple, who are most famous for a mass murder-suicide which took place in 1978, killing over 900 of their members. People associate it with the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid because that's uh, how the poison was injected. But Basically, he was the leader of this church. It actually began in the 1950s in Indiana, but they moved to California in the 60s and really um, kind of took off with the liberal movements that were going on in California at the time. And 
they were all about integration, racial integration. They were socialists, so really they believed in equality um, in a general sense and um, living in a way which was true to that. You can imagine why it would have been super appealing to these two young anti-segregation, anti-war progressives to be consumed by the People's Temple and its message. However, things weren't working between Carolyn and Larry. And this may have been, as Woolett postulates in Beautiful Revolutionaries, because of the pressures of the organisation, particularly Jim Jones. You see, Jones was attracted to Carolyn from the get-go, as he confided to one of his close confidants at the temple, and it wasn't long before the two were having an affair. But Jones was married to a woman named Marceline, but as he claimed, she was unwell and couldn't, quote, satisfy Jim's sexual needs. She actually had a genuine medical condition that prevented her from being sexually active, or at least that's the story. Soon, Lenny was over in Reno getting a a quickie divorce, which basically means he was taking advantage of Nevada's comparatively lax marriage laws to get a fast and easy divorce. Apparently, Carolyn was also a bit roughed up around this time, sporting a black eye and sleeping with a rifle beside the bed. According to Mike Cartmel, a former People's Temple official, she booted Larry as she became more and more involved with the temple and, of course, with Jones. Jones started taking Carolyn out for weekend jaunts, leaving his wife and sons at home, and Carolyn became more and more closely ensconced as Jones's mistress. They also announced themselves to Carolyn's parents, declaring their love and intentions at dinner. Her parents weren't super chuffed about it, though, and indeed, her dad saw straight through Jim's veneer and wondered about his potential authoritarianism, likening him to Elmer Gantry, a fictional evangelical conman. But still, the two grew closer, and Carolyn became more and more involved in the daily workings of the church and in Jones's family. She was soon becoming basically a member of the family and was treated like a stepmother by Jones's sons. But while she didn't necessarily have an official position of authority within the organisation, it soon became clear to those in power that she was to be deferred to and that all decisions were to be run through her and that her instructions were as good as Jones's. And maybe this power started to go to her head a bit. She and Jones started telling people that they were the reincarnation of Vladimir Lenin and his mistress Inessa Armand, and many say that her personality began to change around this time. She started becoming more authoritarian and was responsible for things like setting up fake businesses so that they could move money and make real estate investments. Carolyn was changing, and her family saw it. In August 1974, Carolyn returned to stay with her parents in Berkeley after falling pregnant with Jones's child. Meanwhile, those at the temple believed that she was off on a daring mission to Mexico, where she'd been jailed and was being tortured. Their son was born on January 31st, 1975, and was named Jim John Prokes, nicknamed Chemo. And this was just before the members of the People's Temple moved to their new project, the People's Temple Agricultural Project in Guyana in 1977. Over a thousand members moved to Jonestown. It was supposed to be a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the fascism of the US. Now, there are mixed reports about what the conditions of Jonestown were like. Some claim it was something of a prison camp. It was isolated, and especially when it was first being set up, conditions were rough. The work was hard and physical, and you couldn't leave. However, others say that it was a paradise. 
Despite the community's socialist agenda, however, there were obvious power imbalances. And this is particularly important to note as many of the members who would come over to Guyana were people of colour. I guess as well that feeds into another part of that interesting kind of issue of ideology and how the ideology of People's Temple actually played out. Because there are a lot of issues of race at play as well. And, the you know, there was this, this ideology of interracial families, of, of breaking down those barriers. Barriers, but there were still hierarchies at play. And you've commented before in a Bitch Media article about how you were interested in that sort of that role of white women in the People's Temple because you recognised something in that that was sort of striving to atone for that position of privilege in the world. And that that struck me as a really interesting quote. So I wonder how you think that played into Carolyn's case. Yeah, um, definitely, because looking at the conditions that people in Jonestown were living in, um, she did have it better than the majority of people, um, probably better than anyone besides Jim Jones because um, she was living in his cabin. They had, you know, a lot more supplies and stuff than everyone else had. She was able to travel quite freely. She had access to the bank accounts and that sort of thing. She worked outside Jonestown a lot and she she really was a really mobile person. I think it's interesting because she, she was obviously a really un- – ambitious woman at the same time and I think she did enjoy having that mobility and that power and that ability to do more than she might have actually done if she had worked for another organization outside of People's Temple that didn't have those socialist values because she she was a woman and at that time you know women having that amount of power was quite a rare thing but yeah, so I think there's this kind of a couple of different sides to it. Like I think she would have enjoyed the power and she would have enjoyed the sense of achievement while also um, being able to say, well, it's for the greater good. I'm working for this you know, organisation that has these values. But at the same time, that it's not putting it into practice through the actual organisational hierarchy. So there's like... I guess she's very complicit, obviously, in her involvement with the People's Temple. And so I also then wonder how much do you think she had agency? Was she acting, I don't know, I guess, was she kind of just under the sway of someone like Jim Jones? Because we often think of someone, I mean, obviously, Jim Jones was very charismatic. He was, you know, your typical kind of masculine cult leader. Did she just kind of follow him or did she actually get to shape any of what happened in the end at Jonestown? I I don't think she followed him blindly by any means. I think she was very much um, kind of merged her own identity with his to some extent and um, she believed in him and she believed in People's Temple but there was an aspect of their relationship which maybe was more just um, being herself in some ways. But she definitely was a person who did have a lot of power and having spoken to people, um, a lot of them feel like of all the people who could have stopped what was happening, she was kind of top of the list because people spoke about her and she always seemed sane right until the end and rational right until the end. Even while she was at the same time really fanatical, she also, I guess, um, acted with a sense of... um, like cool-headedness and she was someone who seemed to be in control even when Jim Jones wasn't. So I I think she definitely did have a lot of agency but for some reason she had also um, thrown her lot in with Jim Jones and 
did not want to continue without him. I, I've spoken to a few different people about why this was, and you know, some people are just like, well, she went so far for him. She, you know, compromised her values and acted in ways which outside of this organization she might not have approved of. And so to start over all again would have been too too much, I think. So she just ended up following him right until the end. Oh, is this going to say, do you think that Jones could have achieved what he did without her? I mean, maybe because I think a lot of women would have wanted to take Carolyn's place and, you know, have the level of power that she had. It's hard to say because, she, you know, she was her own personality and stuff. And um, I think she got where she was because of the qualities that she had. But then again, maybe maybe someone else would have also stepped up and done the same things that she did and acted in a similar way. But People's Temple definitely grew from the time that she was member and whether that was just the times that they were in, I think that definitely played a huge part. But also I think Carolyn's organisational skills and her passion and stuff also coincided with those things. And I suppose there's something as well in these sorts of stories that makes us think, you know, you, you, you've just mentioned, you know, her organisational skills, her administration skills, you know, helped to keep yeah. the People's Temple alive. But, you know, I guess we think, well, where's the romance and the glory in the administration skills? You know, we want, we want to focus on the personality. We want to focus on the charisma. You know, like I, I remember a comedian recently talking about the fact that no one makes a movie about Angela Merkel because, you know, it would just be like her getting up in the morning, being very efficient, getting stuff done, listening to other people and running the country, right? So a very efficient woman but where's, where's the story? Where's yeah. the charisma, right? So we tend to focus on or latch on to these personalities you know we immortalize those personalities in our cultural stories and Lauren and I were talking just the other day about you know everyone knows Charles Manson everyone knows his name but fewer people could name the women who carried out the murders and who play a part in um, your collection of short stories as well those names aren't the names we immortalize mm. those aren't the women that we talk about we, we focus on that figure that icon of, of Manson so uh, and I mean, there have been, there are female cult leaders for sure. They have existed, but we don't latch onto those stories. So do you think there's a particular reason why we're drawn to that charisma of these male figures over these female ones? I mean, what is it there that draws us to those stories in particular? Yeah, I mean, I, I do find it really problematic because people go on and on about charisma. And the thing is with someone like Jim Jones, not everyone joined because of his charisma. You know, a lot of people joined because they just liked what was going on and they liked the values and that sort of thing. And I've even spoken to people who've been like, yeah, you know, I didn't really care for him. You know, I, I wasn't really that convinced by him, but all the other things going around were appealing. So I think there's this myth almost of um, the charismatic man and the all-powerful charismatic man who can just say say the right words and convince everyone to follow him and I think it's a lot more complicated than that and I think it, often um you know those people I'm not saying they don't have charisma but it doesn't necessarily work on everyone I think it's the whole effect of ha a person having people following them so once that person has their true believers it makes them seem more powerful and then there's also kind of an organisation and a structure around it which makes it easier for other people to join. I, I don't know. I, I do think charisma exists, but I think it's um, a thing we have a tendency to mythologise and 
exaggerate. And we perpetuate that mythology. And I also wonder in terms of that, what we're mythologizing and perpetuating is also, I guess, the role of sexuality when it comes to women in these kind of organizations, because they tend to have these sort of behind the scenes roles, which we see with Carolyn. They're sort of the people running, like we said, those in those kind of administration positions often they are recruiting and often as a part of that recruitment role, there is an emphasis on on their sexuality, what they look like. They're using that as a tool. But I also wonder if we're perpetuating this idea that women are using their sexuality to attain power in the sense that would a figure like Carolyn have used her position as Jim Jones's mistress to access power in a way that she wouldn't have had access to before? Like is sexuality her tool? Is she? Do you think that she's aware of that or is this something that we are just kind of likely to want to project onto these women mm. because that's, I guess, maybe one of the only narratives that we understand about how women can attach themselves to power? Yeah, I mean, that, that's an interesting question because um, Jim Jones actually like rarely promoted anyone who he wasn't sleeping with. He didn't really trust people who he wasn't at the same time sleeping with and like, at least in his eyes, sexually in control of. So I think there definitely was an element within people's temple of sex equaling power. Jones only really slept with white people, so that kind of um, perpetuated the white power within the organisation. But at the same time, yeah, I think it is important to look at the fact that not everyone who slept with him or had a relationship with him was promoted and it didn't always lead to power. I think there were other things going on where the people and usually women, um, had to actually want power and want to rise within the organisation. It's hard to say. I, I, I don't know. Like, Especially a lot of the women who did have relationships with Jim Jones didn't pursue him. He pursued them. So, yeah, I don't know if it was a thing necessarily where they were using sexuality to get power. In Carolyn's case, I think especially, she did join the organisation, I think, as a quite earnest young woman who was married and... Um, maybe just wanted to be part of a social organisation and to give her all. And the relationship with Jim Jones maybe came as more of a surprise to her. And she did indeed give her all. Carolyn is believed to have written a memo entitled An Analysis of Future Prospects, detailing several options for the people of Jonestown in the face of mounting pressure on the community. It includes moving people back to the United States, allowing some to leave but keeping the majority of the population intact, moving the community to another country and, finally, taking a stand. Because pressures were mounting. So much so that on November 17, 1978, Congressman Leo Ryan, accompanied by some journalists, visited the community to investigate claims of abuse. He was unwelcome and just a day later he was escorted to the local airstrip. Here... He was fired upon by Temple members, killing Ryan, three journalists and a defector of Jonestown. That evening, in one of Jonestown's white nights, Jim Jones compelled his followers to commit revolutionary suicide and drink cyanide-laced, grape-flavoured flavorade. Parents used syringes to squirt the fruit-tasting poison into their children's mouths and then drank the mixture themselves. 918 people died including 217 children. 87 members survive. Carolyn herself ingested the poison in Jones's cabin, along with her son, Chemo. Jones died of a gunshot wound. Most believe it was self-inflicted, but the autopsy is inconclusive. And so I guess the big question, for me at least here, 
is when all is said and done, how do we remember and position a woman like Carolyn Layton? After all, many claim that she is just as complicit in what happened as Jim Jones himself. Or was she a victim of his charisma and this mission that she believed in so strongly? Did things just get so out of hand and, and, and she believed it and didn't know what else to do? These are the kinds of questions that I think are really important to ask. I wonder as well, you know, and not just in regards to Jonestown, but also in regards to some of the other figures that you cover as well in your in your work. When these women actually do come to trial or when they do come to answer for these kind of crimes, are they are they viewed as as victims first, you know, or are they viewed as perpetrators? I mean, obviously this changes case to case, but sometimes there is that sort of that narrative of women as as victims to a particular kind of power that they've fallen under the sway of. So I guess as well, you know, are these women monstrous and evil or are they are they victims? How do we position that? How do these women come across, I suppose, when they actually are brought to trial for their crimes? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends a lot on what the woman looks like. So for instance, a woman like um, one woman I write about is Carla Homolka, who was um, one half of the... Ken and Barbie killers who actually um, killed three girls in the early 90s. And um, Carla was, you know, pretty and blonde and um, she kind of, you know, used her appearance and um, all that to appear more helpless than she was. And then later down the line, more evidence came to the surface where her involvement in the crimes was actually revealed to be a lot more active than she initially claimed. So I think appearance has a lot to do sometimes with how the public receives these women and judges them. And you get, by contrast, a woman like Myra Hindley, who was a half of the Moors murderers. And um, she had this mugshot, which is really famous. And she kind of was labelled as, you know, a hag or a witch or, you know, just a murderous, bloodthirsty woman. But I think there are a few different narratives with women who commit evil acts and they're limited narratives. Um, you know, that there is either she's a victim, she was led into it, or, you know, she's this unnatural sort of woman who has these unnatural desires and um, is worse than a man because at least for a man, you know, maybe these things are within the spectrum of normality, which ties back into what we were talking about or with, you know, domineering characteristics and stuff being kind of more okay for men. So I, I think there's a couple of different narratives and um, they don't necessarily capture all the different motivations and um, complexity behind these cases. And I guess that's why it's really important to kind of tell these stories so that we can see these range of that complexity of, of motivation and agency and also how women can you know, use our prejudices and use our assumptions about what they are and aren't capable of to get themselves out of trouble. And this is something that I find so fascinating. And I kind of like, even though these women are doing often really atrocious things, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, but good on you for like working the system and like using that sexism to oh, benefit yourself. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, if, they're gonna, if people are going to reduce you to a sex object, you can use that reduction in your favour, can't you, if you're smart enough? Yeah, like definitely, Um, again, with the case of Carla Homolka, she got 12 years in jail. Um, her partner, Paul Bernardo, is in jail for life. 
so she she definitely really worked the system and after everything came to light she was revealed to be a really intelligent person um I think she had an IQ of like I don't know 140 or something and um, yeah she she was definitely like very active in what happened and very active in the concealment of the crimes these manipulative women <laughs> yeah shocking isn't it I do love Femme them <laughs> oh, can't trust us you can't trust us <laughs> Obviously, you've done extensive research into the history of Jonestown, extensive research into Carolyn's life and into the life of many of the other people as well who are part of the People's Temple. And as writers ourselves, we're, we're always interested in those questions around representation and those choices that writers make about exploring particular stories as fictionalised versions or whether or not you're trying to write a straight history, I suppose. So... What questions did you sort of want to explore through writing a fictionalised version that, that you thought you could better approach through taking that fictionalised approach rather than sort of a, a straight historical approach, I suppose? Well, I, I, I didn't feel like I could really be true to it by, you know, pretending that it was me telling the truth. I, I thought that to actually get to the heart of it, I had to, you know, use my imagination and make stuff up when I had to. Because, yeah, Carolyn... I did base Evelyn really closely on her and I did as much research into Carolyn as I could and um, really looked into her life and used a lot of anecdotes and real things that happened in her life and expanded upon those. But when you look at the amount of information that's available for someone like Jim Jones, who was obviously at the centre of it and a really well-known figure and, you know, there are endless hours of tapes of him talking and you can really get a feel for who he was, what existed of Carolyn and what remained of her is a lot less to work with. So I, I felt like I really had to just make these decisions and um, imaginative leaps. And I, I, I don't think of Evelyn as Carolyn. She is her own separate entity. But I did try to stay true to certain aspects of Carolyn. Um, but at the same time, yeah, there, there were a lot of decisions I had to make and just things that were more convenient. So for instance, like Evelyn, sorry, Carolyn, um, <laughs> that happens a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. Uh, Carol, Carolyn, um, in college, she studied international relations and political science and she was really knowledgeable about that stuff and I'm not. Yeah. So I, I kind of focused on um, things that I can, you know, inhabit a lot more easily like relationships and stuff rather than political motivations. And I do, I do explore her politics but I think for the real woman – that would have been a lot more complicated than what I do in the books just because I don't have that knowledge. And is this something that also allows you to kind of explore perhaps her motivations or that kind of interior life a little bit maybe in a way that feels more authentic to the story and to the narrative that you want to tell as opposed to kind of constantly second-guessing yourself about like, oh, but why would she have really made this decision and can I know for sure if this is why she did something? Yeah, I, I think in the book I, I do still um, – despite it being a huge book, I, I do keep her motivations at times a bit cloudy. Mm, um, they are, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think she makes sense on a certain level, but she she is also a person who, no matter how much I researched her, did have a mysteriousness to her. And I think even to herself, she didn't always understand why she did the things she did. But I think a lot of her decisions at heart come down to a fundamental ambivalence about whether her life has meaning or not. And mm. she, Jim Jones is really good at manipulating that. 
And so I wonder then after doing all of that like research, do you feel like you actually know her any better? Do you have any particular opinions about this, you know, woman <laughs> at the center of the story? Uh, I don't know. She's someone who like even after studying her for so long, I haven't come to conclusions fully about. I, I do think, you know, she wasn't a bad person. That That's something which is kind of, um, yeah, people have different feelings about depending on how they knew her and when they interacted with her. People who knew her before People's Temple obviously had a much better opinion of her than people who knew her uh, within the organisation and especially towards the end. But I, I think one thing, one person I spoke to who was really important with my research was Carolyn's sister, Becky. And something she said to me early on was that Carolyn was isolated. You know, within Jonestown, um, really her closest person was Jim Jones. You know, she wasn't really close to anyone, anybody else. And um, I think isolation is something that can make you lose touch with yourself and lose touch with other people and... Um, kind of become detached from those values that you would normally operate by. So I think that's an important thing to look at when looking at her is um, she was a person who was quite isolated by this relationship and relationships like that, relationships which are kind of, I guess, abusive, um, that's key characteristic of them is that the abuser tends to isolate the person they're with from other people to some extent. So I think, yeah, she she was just in one of those relationships. But that's not to say that she didn't have agency. I think she certainly did. Yeah. Do you think, just touching on that, that she is somebody who is, I guess, relatable? Yeah, re I wouldn't say relatable. Oh, I hate that word. I know, I hate that it word as well. It sounds like you're writing an undergrad first-year essay. But It's very relatable. But I guess it's about that making her human, isn't it? And thinking about these, like, villainous people who are not, just villains you know she's it's that nuance of it's, yeah. It, yeah of complexity yeah. I suppose yeah I, I well I I think she's relatable but it depends who you speak to I've had a lot of readers being like oh I didn't really get her I didn't mm. really get where she was coming from so I think she's a person who is maybe um even from the beginning I think she is quite a cold person she's more of a intellectual person and not very demonstrative with her feelings and um yeah, not very likable, quotation marks, from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I think that maybe she's not relatable to everybody. But, um, yeah, for me personally, I think she's quite relatable just in the things that motivate her. You know, she wants to make change and she wants to be important and she wants meaningful relationships. And um, I think those are the things that motivate her in the beginning, at least. Yeah, and I think that is something that's very understandable as well. Mm. I think we can all relate to the, how you would end up in that situation. Yeah. yeah. And I think as well that this is something that obviously in the fictionalised version, Beautiful Revolutionary, that you do with such skill and eloquence and it really is a terrific novel. We can't recommend it highly enough, yeah. obviously, for our listeners who haven't read it to get themselves a copy and also Love of the Bad Man as well. So thank you so very much for joining us today, Laura. We can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Oh, well, thanks for having me. And uh, we look forward to uh, the next <laughs> the next novel that hit the shelves. Yeah, well, hopefully it happens 
soon. I'm just like, yeah, working on it every day. So, you know, <laughs> trying to make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. And that was our chat with Laura Elizabeth Woollett about Carolyn Leighton, the mistress of Jim Jones. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed talking to Laura and as much as we enjoyed reading her book, Beautiful Revolutionary. That's that name again, just in case you want to check it out. It is out in Australia, the US and the UK, so you can pick it up. I guess, at any good bookstore that you want to. And I also highly recommend her collection of short stories, The Love of a Bad Man. Seriously, just just get them both. Get them all. Send us your pics of you reading them. We would love to see them. I'm sure Laura would as well. Now, next week, Alicia is away again. This time she will be in China at the World Fireman Police Games, which is kind of cool, I guess. Well, her husband is competing. So yeah, that is actually really very cool. But it means that she's not here. But I have another really special guest lined up. Someone who I'm super, super excited to chat to. And I hope that you guys are excited to hear from her. Now, I don't want to give away too much about who my guest is. But Mm, how can I put it? I guess my hint for you is deviant women. That's my bad rendition of our theme song. So I'm just going to leave that one in your ears. I apologize. We will be back again in a fortnight. Thank you very much again to Laura Elizabeth Woollett. And after next fortnight, we will be back with Alicia and we will return to the normal bants that you love. And in the meantime, if you want more deviant women in your ears, you can join us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You can get all kinds of behind the scenes content and extra episodes. We've got blooper reels. We've got Holes in History, our mini series. Our last Holes in History episode was about Annie Londonderry, the first woman to bicycle around the world, which is actually kind of contentious really. But you you find out why if you listen to the episode. You can also check us out on Etsy if you'd like a fabulous pin or t-shirt. And if you can't afford to support us monetarily, you can leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, spread the word, and please shout us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we would love to hear from you on our socials. We are at Deviant Women. Please tweet us or send us your stories and we would love to share them with everybody else. So that brings us to the end. As always, a very big thank you to Brendan Davies for the sound, India Hui for the music, and to Dan, our executive producer. This is me, Lauren, signing off on behalf of both Alicia and myself. Keep it deviant and we will see you next time. <laughs>